Oh, good evening. We're in our Thursday night Bible study. We're back in 1 Corinthians. We're we'll reading from verses 26 to 31 of chapter 1. And uh, let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For consider your callings, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you remember in verses 18 to 25, Paul was explaining why he proclaims what the world considers to be a foolish message. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So this apparently foolish message, the cross, and then the apparently foolish method, which is preaching make God appear as glorious as he is when he takes those apparently foolish things and by them saves sinners the world may mock the methods and the message calling them both weak and foolish but Paul reminds us the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God stronger than men but now Paul gives us an illustration, an example of that principle. He tells the Corinthians to look in the mirror. Because they themselves are the perfect illustration that God delights to use unlikely instruments for almighty ends. Cast your mind back to the beginning of your Christian lives. Doesn't your own experience confirm this very pattern? That God takes the foolish and the weak and the despised and in and through them does great things. The context, in our context of what we're studying, the Corinthians had began, begun to boast. The new elitism had begun to rear its ugly head among them and Paul is reminding them of their beginnings so that boasting in themselves might cease and that God might get the glory. Consider your calling brothers in other words don't forget where you came from take a good hard look in the mirror see yourself clearly remember the truth about yourself and if you do that your boasting will surely begin to shrivel and die and you'll begin you'll start to give the glory and the praise to God who alone has done mighty things for you a Selina Hastings was the Countess of Huntingdon a very famous Christian evangelical name. She was one of the great evangelical noble women of England in the first half of the 18th century during the Great Awakening. She was a supporter and a patron of the early Methodists. She was a supporter and patron of the ministry of the great George Whitfield. And she used to say that she knew that she was going to get to heaven thanks entirely to the letter M. And when she was asked what she meant by that, she just turned to our passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31, and read 
verse 27, not many were of noble birth. It says not many, but it doesn't say not any. So she gets in, she got in solely on account of the letter M. She understands completely that a high social privilege status played no part at all in securing her eternal destiny. And for that, she knows she must look to the free grace of sovereign God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Selina, Countess of Huntington, grasped Paul's point. She got it that her pedigree, her social standing, her title didn't matter at all, but only the grace of God in Jesus Christ matters when it comes to eternal things. And that's the point that Paul wants us to grasp and embrace from our text today. Just join me in asking three simple questions of our passage. And I think we'll see that more with clarity. First of all, the who. Who were the Corinthian Christians when God saved them? Then the how. How did God redeem them and bring them to save in faith? And then the why. Why did God choose to save them? So who, how and why are three questions. So who were the Corinthian Christians? So we'll look at verse 26 first of all. Paul is not trying to be offensive in verse 26 when he says that not many of you were wise according to earthly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. He's just describing simply the situation. When the church in Corinth began, we look to Acts 18 for that. Most of those who gathered together belonged to the working classes. If you like, the blue collar workers, even slaves and outsiders, ordinary folk. That's just how it went down when the church began at Corinth. There were a few prominent names among them, if you remember from Acts 18, when we preached through that together. Crispus was a ruler of the synagogue, was converted. And then the opening verses of Paul's letter here, we learn, if you remember, that Sosthenes, who was another ruler of the synagogue, was converted. And then Chloe seems to have an, had an extensive personal household, which probably indicated she was a person of prominence and wealth in the Corinthian society. She's a member of the Corinthian church. So there were some, but not many. There were those saved by the letter M, just like Selina, Countess of Huntingdon, even at Corinth, but not many. The exception rather than the rule. Instead, Paul seems to indicate that the Corinthian Fellowship was made up of the most, for the most part, of people who had no reputation for wisdom. They weren't wise according to the standards of the world. They didn't have power. They didn't have the pedigree. They didn't have the nobility, the noble birth. And then if you look at verse 27, Paul seems to go further than that. He says, foolish, weak, low, despised in the eyes of the world. They were, in summary, the things that are not. Literally, they were nobodies, which is how society saw them. Listen to the way one second century opponent of Christianity, a chap called Celsus, talked about the church. Let no one come to us who has been instructed or who is wise or prudent, for such qualifications are deemed evil by us. But if there be any ignorant or unintelligent or uninstructed or foolish person, let them come with confidence. 
by which words acknowledging that such individuals are worthy of their God, they manifestly show that they desire and are able to gain over only the silly and the mean and the stupid with women and children. That's Celsus describing the church. He says the church is full of poor, ignorant, silly women. And that alone, he says, proves that the Christian faith and the Christian God is not worth believing. What he's saying is, who would follow God who welcomes riffraff and dignifies the humanity of the poor and women and slaves like this? That was the view of Celsus. There was another example, this time an ancient graffiti found scrawled on a wall in Rome. And it was a picture of the crucifixion with a man kneeling in adoration before a Christ-like figure hanging on the cross. But instead of Christ's head on the graffiti was the head of a donkey. And the inscription underneath just read, Alex Aminos worships his God. Just saying only idiots join the church. Alex Aminos, you have to be gullible to buy this Jesus nonsense. Imagine if there were such a thing that you visited the website of First Church Corinth. And this was a description you find, found. We're not particularly wise. Very few of us have A-levels. We're not powerful. Persons of rank really find their way to us. You won't find our faces at society balls or in the pages of Who Who. No, First Church at Corinth is a community of foolish, weak, low, despised nobodies. And by the way, look forward to welcoming you Sunday at 10.30. See, that's how people responded to the Corinthian believers in Paul's day. And ever since then, believers have felt the sting of that. The temptation has been very real for the church to adorn itself with the trappings of power and wisdom and social respectability in the hope of alluring, of drawing in the elite and the brilliant and the influential to their ranks. I think it is worth asking if, and in what ways we've been pursuing the trends of the culture and adopting the fashions of the world in the hope that no one will scrawl on a Lake District wall a picture of us looking foolish, adoring a crucified donkey. You see, Paul is challenging us to choose. There is a dilemma. And Paul wants us to see where we stand on the horns of the dilemma. Remember how James put it. James 4 verse 4, only a few weeks ago we looked at this. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you follow Jesus, you'll be seen not as the elite or the wise or the mighty, but as the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised. That is true, isn't it? That is true. Or else follow the world and you blend right in. As you weigh these two options, would you please remember the question of our Saviour who says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Who were the Corinthians? They were foolish, weak, nobodies. It's really challenged me this week in just talking at home and talking with other people. Do we want to be liked in the community? Or do we want to please our Saviour? who gave himself for us. It is as simple as that. 
And it isn't that we're not, you know, we, we go out to be obnoxious, but if our goal is to be accepted and liked, and then oftentimes we try and justify it by saying, I need to be accepted, I need to be in the community so I can tell people about Jesus. But then if you analyse it, you never do. So who were the Corinthians? They were foolish, they were weak, they were nobody. Secondly, that's the who, the how. How is it that these vulnerable people came to belong to a group so universally despised as the Church of Jesus Christ? How did the Corinthian believers come to be believers at all? There are huge social, cultural obstacles for them to overcome, after all. So how did it happen? And Paul's answer to that is that they are Christians, not because of some flash of insight, in that they see the truth for themselves. It isn't that they were smart or strategic. It isn't that Paul persuaded them. They would have never become Christians, never would have joined the church, if not for one consideration. They're Christians because of the sovereign, irresistible, saving intervention of Almighty God in their lives. Consider your calling, brothers. Paul is talking about the beginnings of their Christian life, their conversion. And he calls it their calling because it is the call of God that anyone is a believer at all. And he's not talking about the general universal call that sounds to all people everywhere in the invitation of the gospel preached. But the mighty, sovereign, irresistible work of the Spirit of God that comes with that call that works in the hearts of some and causes them to respond and pass from death to life. The call of God made them Christians. We'll look at verse 27 and notice the emphasis again on the electing choice of God. How many times are we told in that verse God chose. God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised in the things that are not. God chose. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The electing love of the Father was fixed on you before there were stars. And because God chose, God called. And because God chose and called, therefore, verse 30, you're in Christ Jesus. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You have nothing, after all, Corinthians. You have nothing to attract the love of God. Nothing in yourselves. Weak, foolish, low, despised, nothings. And that's what Paul says we are. In our salvation, Paul wants us to understand is all gift, all grace, sheer, unmerited, free. We're not Christians because we're better than other people. Do you really believe that? You're not a Christian because you're better than someone else? If we are Christians, it's because we're cosmic charity cases, utterly spiritually threadbare, wholly dependent, bereft of spiritual resource, soul-starved beggars pleading for a crust, and God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he united us to Christ. He fed us and clothed us with the robes of Christ's righteousness and took us in our abandonment and sin and adopted us and made us children of God all by grace and for free because of nothing in us but because of who he is. So the glory might be his. Who? How? Why? Who were they? Unlovely, unimportant, undesirable. How were they converted? Well, God 
chose them and called them, united them to his son, our Lord Jesus. It was all of God from beginning to end. Why did God choose to do it this way? Why did God do it this way? Why pick such unattractive, unimportant individuals as the Corinthians? Or let me make it more pointed. Why did God save you? Why did he save me? I believe we see three reasons in our text. Number one, to shame the wise and the strong. God chooses the foolish and the weak and the nobodies, verse 27 and 28, to shame the wise and the strong and the somebodies to bring them to nothing. He does it in verse 29, so that no human being may boast in the presence of Christ. He chooses weak, poor, foolish people to show strong, rich, smart people that being strong, rich and smart has no bearing on your eternal destiny, none at all. If they are to hope for heaven, it will require them to humble themselves utterly before God and acknowledge that even they are beggars pleading for mercy like the rest of us. If you stand on your successes, if you boast in your prowess, if you point out your pedigree, you may find that whatever place people give you in the ranks of this world, you have no place among the people of God in the kingdom of God in the age to come. No, if you are to have any hope at all, we must learn to sing with Augustus' top lady. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. Secondly, God chooses the weak and the foolish and the nobodies that we might cherish Christ above all. Verse 30, and because of him you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see what Paul is saying, that the wisdom of the world, God brings to nothing, because Jesus is the wisdom that you need. If you've travelled internationally, I've had the privilege of doing that a lot, and been to multiple different countries, you may have discovered with me, very frustratingly, that there are different power outlets and different voltages and sockets required. America's a tricky place to travel to. Different configurations. And you may, as I have done, try to invest in a universal adapter. They're not normally very good. You normally just need to get an adapter in the country that you're going to. But you, you can get a universal adapter good for every situation. Well, it's a poor illustration, but the need of the human heart is multifaceted and complicated. And Paul is saying that Jesus is wisdom from God, an answer for every situation. He genuinely is a universal adapter to which you may plug in to get what your heart truly needs. Wisdom from God. And Paul explains that that wisdom entails righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Righteousness for our guilt, sanctification for our pollution, redemption for our bondage. The point is Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough. When the world says you need to be wise and strong and noble and a thousand other things besides, the gospel says Jesus is all you need. And in him, God's great wisdom, there is righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Not money, not power, not influence, not social standing, not respectability, not penance, not approval. Jesus. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is what you need. And as we begin to lie in the dust, seeing ourselves as we truly are in our smallness and futility and weakness and foolishness, 
we recognise that there is a limitless repository of grace for us in him so that we don't need to be strong and wise and noble and mighty because he is enough and thirdly God chooses the weak and the foolish and the nobodies verse 31 so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord God's agenda in humbling us is that he might get the glory as we begin to discover how sufficient Jesus is he wants to have first place and receive the glory he doesn't want you not to boast he didn't want the Corinthians not to boast but he wants us to boast in the right thing not in ourselves but in Jesus so that the praise might go to him alone days are coming already for some of us when to follow Christ will bring a social stigma and significant personal cost it's on my heart that this is the case and part of our message this evening brothers and sisters is simple is to stand firm Stand firm under the cross of Christ, bearing his reproach, content to be foolish and weak and powerless, content to be nobody. Because Paul is saying that it's the weak and the foolish and the nobodies that God delights to choose and call. A church of nobodies is what God delights to use. To shame the wise and the strong and the powerful and the somebodies. To bring them to the dust of humility before the Lord so that they might not boast in themselves any longer. But join us in boasting in Lord, the Lord alone and in Christ, our perfect, sufficient saviour. When God does that in a church, when he puts us in the dust and shows us the majesty and glory and the worth and sufficiency of Jesus. And he gets the glory. Our hearts fill with joy. And he will use us mightily for his own great purposes and ends. May the Lord do that precisely here among us. May the praise be his. Amen.